0: Regret. Nothing personal. Word of the day for Tuesday, October 27th, 2020 is regret. Regret is a word that we all feel from time to time. Everyone asks you that in an interview when you're interviewing for a job or you're talking to your friends out on a Saturday night. Although I don't remember going out on a Saturday night because of COVID. Hey, do you have any regrets? What's your biggest regret? I think the definition for me of regret is when you make a decision, you believe that it's the right decision at the time, even though you've weighed two possible outcomes and two possible decisions. You make one, you play it out, and then it doesn't work out. You look back and you say, wow, I have regret. Where I like making decisions, and if I'm wrong, I go back and say, no, I don't regret that. I went into it with all the information I needed, I made the decision intelligently. I made it without emotion. I made it looking at all possible outcomes, knowing that some of the outcomes may be negative and may not be what I want. Yet I'm not going to feel regret. So you say you're not going to feel regret. Then the negative outcome happens. And then you say you have regret. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think that you should ever have regret with something you do because let's talk about this coca for a minute. We actually didn't do this in the in the pregame meeting that we had in the pre-show meeting. But in order to feel regret, don't you have to go into a decision knowing that there's a higher likelihood than not that it's not going to work out and you still go with that? So you ignore the math. You ignore it sometimes your gut, but you go with what you're told to go with or you go with what you you believe you should be going with. I don't know. Why is regret the nothing personal word of the day? Well, here's my thought. We have game six of the Major League Baseball World Series tonight. The Dodgers are leading three games to two. They're going for their first World Series in 32 years. They last won it in 1988 against the Oakland A's. And the starting pitcher for game six of the World Series is Tony Gonsolin. They've got Walker Bueller ready to go for game seven. He'd be ready to go in game six on short rest. For all of you Marlins fans out there, any similarity? Do you recognize this storyline at all? Let me bring you back. I did a radio show this morning in Naples. Tampa Bay. It's near Tampa, sort of near Tampa. And I was reminded of game six of the 2003 World Series and the argument that I had with Jack McKeon. Back in 2003, we were starting the possibility of analytics. Moneyball was not really a thing, even though it's never been a thing for me. We had information to go with, but Jack McKeon, who we had brought in during that season, was brought in to turn around a team that we believed could be better and was not performing under Jeff Torborg who we had brought in to replace Felipe Alou with the Expos and then brought Torborg over when we moved from Montreal to Florida. Remember Torborg? He was manager of the Mets for a while. So Jack McKeon did a lot of gut work. He had been a very successful manager, but had never been to the World Series. He was old school before it was hip to say that we're new school and let's not be old school. And he decided that winning three to two over the Yankees going into Yankee stadium for game six and seven, needing to win one of the next two to win the world series that he was going to go with Josh Beckett. I was waiting online to get on the team plane after game five, flying back to New York. And I said to Jack, I said, what are you thinking for game six? We got to go with Redmond so we can have Beckett available for game seven on regular rest. And he said, Sparky, there's no way we're doing that. We're starting Beckett. I'm starting Beckett. I said, Jack, we got to talk about it, don't we? He said, do you want to win? Well, I'm not waiting around for a game seven. He said, Sparky, let me tell you something. In a game seven, there is no way to properly analyze or predict what can happen. You can have the best team in baseball. You can have the number one starter, the ace, the Cy Young Award winner, the MVP. You can have... Every advantage possible, home field advantage, momentum, whatever the case may be. And you can give up seven runs in the first inning. You could have an offense that gets no hit. Sparky, I've seen it all. We've got to win game six. And to win game six, we are going with our best. And Beckett can pitch on short rest. We don't need to baby him. And he wasn't signed to a long-term deal. He had no idea at that time that we were going to trade Josh Beckett to the Boston Red Sox. We didn't know we were going to trade Josh Beckett to the Boston Red Sox to get Hanley Ramirez and Annabelle Sanchez. That was the Beckett Lowell trade. I think, by the way, that's a funny story, Coca. That was a trade that happened on Thanksgiving. While one of my kids had food poisoning, was vomiting, I was away from the table finishing that big trade with Larry Lachino and Larry Beinfest. That was funny. Any case, so I'm having this discussion. I said, Jack, I just don't agree. I think that we've got to keep Beckett fresh. And his point was this. If you're going to lose, you're going to lose with your best, and you are going to avoid a game seven at all costs. The Dodgers, on the other hand, have chosen the exact opposite philosophy. The Dodgers will tell you that they have all of the analytics. Andrew Friedman and all of his smart baseball people, and you know my view of Andrew Friedman. He is terrific. What he did with Tampa and now what he's doing with the Dodgers, although without a ring, none of it matters. He has told Dave Roberts that going with Tony Gonsolin and going with a bullpen game in a clinching possible game six Wait, it's not a clinching possible game six. It's a definite game six that is a clinching game. That going bullpen is the way to go. Now, the Dodgers bullpen during the World Series has a collective earned run average of 5.57. Small sample size, but it's true. The bullpen has not been all that effective. What's the downside? What's the regret that Andrew Friedman could feel? And I'm not going to mention Dave Roberts. Because this is not his decision. Andrew Friedman loses Game 6 tonight. Blake Snell steps up. Finally, the Tampa Bay hitters, other than Arazzarena, get some clutch hits. And we go to a Game 7 tomorrow night. Game 7 tomorrow night would be Charlie Morton, the greatest Game 7 pitcher of all time, period, against the ace of the Dodgers, Walker Bueller. Walker Bueller could go seven strong tomorrow in a game seven, or he could be knocked out in the third inning. Charlie Morton could get hit around like he did in game three, or he could do his normal six innings of game seven work, not giving up a run. It is a straight 50-50 shot, period. How are you going to feel if you are the Dodgers, where you will now be eight years into your run of winning divisions, you will have lost three World Series in four years and you will be ringless. If that's not the definition of regret, then I don't know what is. Now, what is the other side of that story? It's that The bullpen works fine tonight for the Dodgers. Gonsolin goes once through the order at best, although I don't think he'll even have a chance to go nine batters in. They start parading out reliever after reliever. It ends with Kenley Jansen in the ninth inning, closing out the game and finishing and winning the World Series. Now, if I'm the Dodgers, I'm looking at the Rays and I'm saying, who's hitting on the Rays? Brandon Lau's hitting 143. Adamas, the shortstop, can't get a hit if you paid him. He's hitting 176. Don't even talk to me about Zanino, who his batting average is Blutarski's grade point average. Zero point zero zero zero. Now he does have a walk, but he is 0 for 13 with a walk. The Rays are batting 228 this World Series. They simply cannot hit. Blake Snell has proven that he can't go past the fifth inning. He hasn't done it all year. Nick Anderson, part of the stable of bullpen arms that Kevin Cash has relied on so heavily, has been scored on six straight. Castillo, their closer, has been forced to work in the fifth or sixth inning in two games this World Series, maybe more. I think two. Can't remember. Fairbanks, their other big arm, has gotten scored on. Loop has been, eh, Mediocre, meh. The Rays, when they get runners on, can't get them in. The Rays are hitting 220, 223 with runners in scoring position. The Dodgers are counting on that trend to continue. There's an expression we like, the trend is your friend. It's hard to have a trend after five games, but maybe there is a trend. But if there's also a trend, that means that the Dodgers won games one, three, and five. The Rays won games two and four. It would seem to me the Rays will win game six. That would be back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And if we're going to go with that trend, that would mean the Dodgers would be favored to win game seven. All of that is to say, I'm not buying it. The risk of regret is far too great. We're going to see what happens tonight in a game six. Will we be celebrating if you're a Dodger fan? Or will we force what will become the greatest? It's my favorite thing in sports. You know, I love game sevens. We had two game sevens in the league championship series and a game seven in the world series. That'd be great for baseball because there'd be 21 games broadcast, which would help with the make goods that the league has to give. We're going to talk about that later in the show. We have a lot of business to talk about later in this show. But I'm going to give you a pick. And I'm going to risk that I'm going to be, you know that Twitter account, freezing cold takes or old takes exposed when they keep track of what people say and then they have at them when they get it wrong? Well, my pick tonight in the nothing personal pick of the day is the Rays. You know, I've chosen the Rays almost every game, so I'm two and three, I guess, in the World Series. But I think we're up money because the Rays are always underdogs. We lost our pick of the day last night. Did you watch that Bears game, Coca? Are they the worst five and one team of all time? I think they are. What was I thinking? Anyway, the Bears lost 24-10. We're down to 30 and 27 with our picks of the day. We're only up a field goal. We used to be up a touchdown. We're going the Rays in game six. And I'm going to tell you about a wait to see right now. Wait to see is on nothing personal. Is when we say something's going to happen. It's not necessarily a pick. It's just something. And then we'll revisit you all the time. Did it happen? Did it not? We'll take blame. We'll own it if it didn't. I'm doubling down. I've got an earlier wait to see on nothing personal that the Rays win the World Series in seven. I'm doubling down on the wait to see. And that is I'm not leaving Stanford, Connecticut just yet. The Rays will win game six. You wait to see. You pick that game. You bet that game. Even if you don't bet, you don't have to bet it. But just tell people the Rays are going to win. I think Blake Snell will have the best start of his postseason. He will get through five full innings. The bullpen will lock it down. The Dodgers will be a little tight because the other little factor that comes in. One of the things that we do when we talk to players before a game. So as I told you, during the regular season, you're dealing with meetings pre-series where you have a hitters meeting and a pitchers meeting. The hitters get together and talk about the opposing team's pitching staff. The pitchers get together and talk about the opposing team's hitters. During the postseason, you're having those meetings every game. When you look at what you have to face, the first thing you do is you're looking at the opposing team starting pitcher. When the Rays are looking at game six and they see that the pitcher is Gonsolin, who was the losing pitcher in game two, as you may recall, where he pitched one in a third innings, that's it. Remember that Brandon Lau home run? In any case... They're looking at Gonsolin and they're saying, we got him. We can win this game. It gives, this, it gives the hitters this sense of um, relaxation. But it also gives your own starting pitcher this feeling of invincibility. Blake Snell is going in saying, I'm not facing Walker Bueller. I'm not facing Cy Young. I'm facing Tony Gonsolin. That's it. So I think that combination leads to a raised victory in game six. And we get to come back on Nothing Personal tomorrow and preview a winner-take-all World Series game seven. Can't wait. Literally can't wait. Okay. I want to thank you. I need to get this in right now. It is now October 27th. We're going to have an end-of-month mailbag bonus episode where you ask questions and I answer them. Please go to Apple and write a review on Apple and rate it five stars and write a review and ask a question. I think the October mailbag is not quite filled. So if you have a question that you want me to address during these end-of-month mailbag episodes, please go to Apple rate, review, and put a question in the review. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you. Nothing Personal with David Sampson is the YouTube channel. And then if you're listening, you can't see that I'm wearing the World Series ring. I only get to wear this ring today and tomorrow if there's a Game 7. Please download, subscribe, tell your friends about Nothing Personal. When we come back, we've got a big-time movie review. Aaron Sorkin wrote a movie that I watched yesterday. And then we are going to get to the business of baseball. There are a lot of people in baseball without a job today. And I don't mean managers and general managers. I mean people on the business side, scouts, people in player development. And we've got to talk about that. When we come back, we're going to talk about Chicago. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment.
1: That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp-you-out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal.
0: Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
1: The headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place.
0: Welcome back to nothing personal. Thank you for sticking around through the commercials. I'm told they help pay the bills, which is a good thing. If you want nothing personal to keep going. And I know Coca does. I watched a movie that came out on Netflix straight to Netflix. Is anyone going to go to a movie theater again? I was just talking to a friend about this, or maybe it was a sibling. I can't remember. I was talking to someone about movie theaters. Movie theaters are beginning to open again. I really have zero interest in going to a movie theater, and I'm a total cinephile. Great movies are getting straight to Netflix, straight to Hulu, straight to Amazon, straight to On Demand. I'm willing to pay fourteen ninety-nine to watch a movie in the comfort of my own home, even on an iPad, because I don't really want to go into a theater. I'm not even sure it's COVID-related. It's just sort of inconvenience-related. One thing about COVID and quarantine is my tolerance for being inconvenienced is plummeting. It's like an eight-minute commute from the Stanford Hotel to the studio in Stanford where I am right now. Anytime I hit a red light, my frustration tolerance level diminishes, and I get hugely impatient. So you know how when you're at a red light that, and you're supposed to go left, but you could go straight and do a U-turn and then make a right turn to be on the street you would have gone if you had just gone left at that light? I'm now the guy who doesn't wait for the left turn light to turn green. I go straight on the green, do the U-turn, and then make the right on red. I'm a little crazy that way. Well, there's a new movie. Aaron Sorkin is the screenwriter, A Few Good Men, West Wing. You've heard of him. Unbelievably talented, brilliant. The Newsroom, people didn't like it. I loved it, that show on HBO with Jeff Daniels. He did a movie called The Trial of the Chicago Seven every time you go on Netflix, it's right there. They want you to watch it. I had no idea. I was born in 1968. In 1968, there was a presidential election. The Democratic uh, Convention, which was supposed to be, that's the one that was supposed to be in, where was it, Coca? I think the Republican Convention was supposed to be in Milwaukee and got canceled. Or was that the Democratic Convention? No, no, no. The Republican convention was supposed to be in Carolina and Florida. The Democratic convention was supposed to be in Milwaukee. Anyway, it didn't happen. But that year, the Democratic convention took place in Chicago. There were a bunch of protests, a bunch of riots. And the Chicago police either started or didn't start a riot that resulted in the arrest and trial of what became known as the Chicago seven. Part of the Chicago 7 was a man named Tom Hayden. Tom Hayden would grow up to marry Jane Fonda, be a long-term politician. Part of the Chicago 7 was a beatnik. Is that the right word? Coco, what's a beatnik? Have you ever heard that word? I think it's B-E-A-T-N-I-K. Beatnik. Named Abby Hoffman. Jerry Rubin. One of the Chicago 7. Actually, that's not true. The Chicago 7 used to be the Chicago 8. And Bobby Steele, who was the head of the Black Panthers, was also arrested, but he, it was declared a mistrial. There was a judge played by Frank Langella in this movie, Judge Hoffman, no relation to Abby, who was a, what's the right way to describe him? Incompetent. You know, with Election Day coming up a week from today, Election Day is a week from today, folks. Please make sure you're voting early. And if you're in Chicago, you can vote often. When you go down ballot on your election ballot, sorry, Coca, this is totally off the rails, although we're talking about the trial of the Chicago 7 and the fact that Judge Hoffman was totally incompetent and the conviction, by the way, spoiler alert, the conviction got overturned. When you're down ballot and you are choosing judges or when you're choosing your senators, your congressmen, understand how judges Become judges. They're either elected or appointed. They're appointed by people who you elect. Judges are not appointed by people who are appointed. You've got the power. We've got the power. Use it. I said steal it, seal. Sorry, Coco. Thank you for that correction. Thank you for that. So, this movie goes through the story of the trial the insanity of a six-month trial, the insanity of a judge who so obviously wanted convictions. It goes through the struggles. Mark Rylance plays the lawyer, a very famous lawyer named Bill Kunstler. And it gives a great performance. Mark Rylance is the Academy Award winner. You've seen him. And one thing that I should say about the movie is that It's not as liberal leaning as Aaron Sorkin can be. It does not talk about much the police's role in the riot and the reality, which is we don't know whether the police started the riot or the protesters started the riot. And that's an important point. The movie glosses over that and pretends that the police started the riot. We don't know exactly what happened in the courtroom because there were no cameras. It's based on court documents. It's based on testimony. The most important scene of the movie is the final scene, and it's made up. And that bothers me. What's the reason Aaron Sorkin needed to do that? Now, it's dramatic what happens at the end. There's no doubt about it. But why? When I went to Fact v. Fiction, which I always do after watching a movie which is purportedly fact, and I learn that such a big part of it is fiction, it ruins it for me. The reason why you should watch the trial of the Chicago 7 is that you have an opportunity, a true opportunity, to learn something and then study for yourself to learn more. Check it out. Okay. So Coca is, is telling me something that he wants to uh, me to talk about, which I'm happy to talk about, uh, and that is... Wait, Coca, why didn't you bring this up pregame? When we're doing the show, Coca, and you want me to talk about Northwestern, you're talking about Morty Shapiro and what we talked about yesterday, right? Did anyone listen to the show yesterday when we talked about Morty Shapiro and what was going on with the student protesters? And we talked about the fact that Morty Shapiro was unhappy with the violence and the potential anti-Semitic nature and the looting that was going on, I don't know if it was looting, it was just violence and graffiti and all sorts of mayhem in that way, and how he wanted actual conversation in order to effectuate change. Well, the fact of the matter is, that's a lot of what we're talking about these days, and a lot of what we're talking about in the trial of Chicago 7. So when you watch it, please think about what is the most impactful way that you can make a difference. My view is voting, If you don't like what's happening in this country, then change the president. If you do like what's happening in this country, then keep the president. If you don't like what's happening in your state, change out your state representatives. If you do like what's happening in your state, then vote for the incumbents. Take the power. All right, Coca, there's a change happening in baseball, and it's a long term change. Talk to me. You know what I want. I want to talk to Samson. So I want to talk to Samson. I don't want to talk to Samson. I hear myself every day. People get into my Twitter at David P. Samson. Please follow me because that stuff matters. I can't figure out why, but it does. It's not like I'm peddling products. I'm, I guess other than nothing personal. Wouldn't that be amazing to have enough followers that you'd get paid to wear spanks? Yes, I wear spanks. How about the skinny jeans? I don't really have skinny jeans. I just have small legs. I'm tweeting that I like Spanks. Give me a dollar. I think you get paid more than a dollar if you have a lot of followers. David P. Sampson, get into my DMs, ask a question. The question was asked yesterday. Did you do a goodbye call the way Jeff Wilpon did? Now, for those of you Not paying attention. The New York Mets are about to be sold. They're about to be sold to Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez. Those are going to be the new owners. It's going to be exciting. Star studded. Just kidding. I told you they wouldn't get the team. It's Steve Cohn, the billionaire. The Mets are in heaven. There's a guy here in Stanford. He's a, I don't know. He's a producer. His name is Scott Riley. He's the biggest Mets fan ever. He's been despondent his whole life, basically. Frustrated. And he thinks that the savior is coming. I present you with this $200 million payroll. Enjoy, Scott. Nah, not going to happen that way. But he's going to come in and there's going to be a lot of changes with the Mets. But the focus of this question is on the old regime and what happens. When there's a change of ownership, there's a huge, huge amount of anxiety for all employees on the baseball and the business side. And it's not business related, which we're going to talk about next and the issues that are going on around baseball. Now, this is about when a new owner comes in, very often the new owner is going to make changes. Sometimes they even will want a new president. Get it? That was me. Sometimes they'll want a new GM. Get it? That's Brody. Sometimes they'll want someone new in sales, in marketing. Sometimes they'll want a new manager sometimes a new CFO. You don't know what a new owner is going to do until a new owner walks in. And when a new owner walks in, by definition, he or she or they will want changes. And the changes they will want will not necessarily be for the better. It is the true definition of change for change sake. When something isn't going the way you want it to go, you make changes because you want to try to make it better. That's not change for change sake. When there's failure, you make change because you need to change failure from success. The greatest expression I've ever heard is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That is insane. So new owners come in and say, I'm not going to settle for that. The Wilpons have owned the Mets for decades. Fred Wilpon, the owner, His son, Jeff Wilpon, is the part owner and chief operating officer, has run the day-to-day operation of the team the same way I did for 18 years. Yesterday, Jeff Wilpon, it was reported, did a phone call with his employees. And here's how the phone call would have gone had I done one. Wait a minute. I did do one. I knew very well that I wasn't going to be retained by Jeter. I knew that the sale was going to go through and that Bruce Sherman would be voted as the new owner of the Marlins with Jeter as his mouthpiece and idol. Just like Jeff Wilpon knows that Steve Cohn is going to get the team in a vote coming up here in the next week, ignore all of the BS that you read. There's a mayor in New York, his name is. Bill de Blasio. One of the provisions of the ballpark deal in New York that enabled City Field to get built is that the mayor actually has the ability to deny a change of control, to deny an assignment of the obligations of the Wilpon led Mets. Mets fans are panicked. Don't panic. It is perfunctory, totally. Everyone's worried. Will Steve Cohn get the 23 votes necessary? Panicked. They got excited when the ownership committee voted seven to one in favor with Reinstorf voting against. Don't panic. Jeff Wilpon knows for sure, as I do, as you do, as you've known forever, because of nothing personal, Steve Cohn's taking over. So Jeff Wilpon plans a Zoom meeting. And here's what you say when you are saying goodbye. Jeff Wilpon has had his issues publicly and privately. They've been well documented. You know very well that when I was running the team, I had my issues publicly and privately, well documented. You cannot be an effective president and be liked by everyone. If you're one of those people who it needs to be liked, don't become a team president. Don't become a leader of any kind, actually. One of the mailbag episodes a few months ago, Coco, we talked about someone asked me a question about leading and and what what's it like to be a leader. And I talked about the fact that leaders need followers and followers need leaders, and it's okay to be leaders are not better people than followers. They're not smarter. They're not more important because you can't be a leader without a follower. And to know which one you are, that's the trick of life. To be a good president, you've got to be a good leader, and it's not a popularity contest. When you get on the phone with your employees, you get on and you say, thank you. You are humble. I don't know if Jeff Wilpon was. I don't know if he can be, and it doesn't matter. The phone call that I've done with my employees, both en masse and also individually, was letting them know that every single success we had as an organization, a World Series in 03, a new ballpark in 2012, an all-star game in 2017, World Baseball Classics in 2009, 12 and 16, I can't remember. We hosted three World Baseball Classics. The unbelievable process of building a ballpark, of getting a ballpark approved, of securing public financing. The amazing work that we did in the community, changing lives of people who couldn't care less whether the Marlins won a game or lost a game or signed a player or traded a player. Their biggest concern was their next meal. You gain a lot of perspective when you work in a community and actually care and don't do it just for the cameras. And don't do it when people are looking. In our community, we had a program called the IUDON, which I've talked about. We were active in the community every single day. Not for the praise. Because it's right. You're humble because you're thanking people who work harder than you do. And make one tenth, one twentieth. Of the amount you get paid. You thank people for caring about the team and the brand and the product as much as you did. You thank the employees for having to explain that their boss isn't the devil and that what you hear about him isn't true. It's not easy having people were forced to defend me all the time. I've never talked about that, Coca. It's very frustrating, very frustrating. When people, this happens at CBS Sports, by the way. There's people, this happened with uh, Ruben, our guy Ruben, that Laker fan. You know him because Ruben talks kicks. He told me that he had this view of me as a Floridian before he met me, and now he absolutely enjoys our conversations and spending time, even though we haven't actually seen each other since COVID started. And he told me that when people know that he works with me, they say, how could you work with that POS? Isn't he a total arse? And he's got to defend me. Not because he has to, because he wants to. Employees of the Marlins had to do the same thing. They didn't have to defend me or defend Jeffrey. They did it because they wanted to. They knew Jeffrey was generous to the point of nice sweats. They knew that I cared about the employees and about their personal lives and about their professional lives. They knew that my facade of lack of emotion and my business-like approach, my absolutely being forward at all times, they knew that that's the job I had to do. When you do a goodbye call, you get wistful, you get emotional. And I'm not an emotional guy. The reason I was emotional during my goodbyes is I don't like finality. It's the reason I'm scared to death. I don't like anything that can't be undone. When Jeff Wilpon says goodbye to the Mets, when I say goodbye to the Marlins, when anybody says goodbye, if they do it right, the employees, when they hang up the phone, they get together, they may shed a tear, and they realize that they were part of something great. And that's all I ever wanted. I wanted people to think throughout the entire 18 years together that they were the part of something, a team, a moment. A connection. And I hope that Mets employees feel that and that when they come to work with a new owner and a new team president, they do their best to be loyal to the new team president because believe me, the king is dead. Long live the king. That's not just an expression. That's a reality. But that they look back on their years with the Mets and they realize that they help make memories for millions of people. Thanks for that question. So you want to talk to Samson? Make sure to Get on Twitter and give me more. More questions, please. Okay. I want to end the show, as promised, with something that's happening in the baseball world. It's not unique to the baseball world, but it's getting a lot of attention. You know that baseball always is on the forefront of publicity a bunch of private companies that are supposed to act public, and the expectations are they'll be public. You're dealing with people's loyalties and emotions. Well, right now, owners have a problem, and that problem is really, really public right now. Baseball as an industry lost billions of dollars. Rob Manford's claiming an EBITDA loss Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's not a cash loss. That's a paper loss. Claiming a paper loss in the billions. Cash loss, my guess is close to a billion dollars, maybe more. The reality is that 2021 is uncertain in the baseball world. We don't know whether there'll be fans. We, that's a dollar coca. Damn it. They don't know whether fans will be allowed. If fans are allowed, they do not know what capacity. The big deal in baseball is whether they can get 162 games in. They don't know whether they can. Why that is a big deal is that that will at least give them their full local broadcast revenue. They don't know what the gate revenue will be food, beverages, merchandise, parking, tickets. When you don't know what your revenue is, you cannot properly figure out what your expenses should be. John Middleton, the owner of the Philadelphia Phillies, was very clear that he doesn't know whether he should sign JT Realmuto. He doesn't know what his payroll should be because he doesn't know his revenue. And I agree. It doesn't matter that he's a billionaire. Right now, articles are coming out saying it doesn't matter. Sign players. Trade for players build your team, win, win. Don't fire anyone. That's the point of this topic right now, Coca. Baseball employees and business employees are being fired. They used to be furloughed, and now they're simply being fired. The reason they're being fired is that owners are going over the budget with their team president. They're being told what to expect and it's possible what the reality could be in 21 and they're forced to make these decisions the argument against it that is being proffered is that quote it's a rounding error you fire someone who makes $60,000 it's a rounding error when you're paying some crappy bullpen guy a million bucks when you're a billionaire what's the difference between losing 10 million or 10.1 million dollars you have to sell your plane, your yacht, your mansion? Do you have to live differently? Get rid of your chef? Ladies and gentlemen, that's not relevant. No one runs a business. No one owns a business trying to lose money on an operating basis. Here is the example I have given, and it's worth it to give it again. When you own a house that you bought for $200,000, and that house is now worth $500,000, but you still live in it, it's really cool to know that you have a house worth $500,000. But that doesn't put cash in your pocket. That's a paper gain. If you don't sell the house, it could be worth a million. It could be worth negative a dollar. It doesn't matter. You're living in the house. You're not selling it. You get a knock on the door because your heat doesn't work and your water's been turned off because you can't afford to pay your water bill or heating bill or electric bill. You say to the person who's in charge, who comes to your door to cut off your power, you say, excuse me, my house is now worth $500,000. I'm rich. And that man says to you, do you have $30 to pay your bill? And you say, sorry. Sorry. I do not. The analogy here is that you're right. A team may be worth a billion dollars. You're right. The owner of the team may be worth a billion dollars. But until you sell the team, you don't know what the team's worth and you're not capturing that money. And just because you have a billion dollars doesn't mean that you are forced to lose a dollar, forget 10 million, forget 100 million, forget 10,000. Where is it written that it is my job as an owner of a business to lose money? What about people who own the corner market? Is it their job to lose money just because they're part of a great real estate corner? When I'm forced to make a decision about what to do, and I'm running a team, I have no choice but to cut expenses. I may lower the payroll too. And you're right. Lowering the payroll by 10 million means I could save every single employee's job, every pro scout, every person in ticket sales, every person in marketing. But I'm going to do both because I don't know what the future brings. Why do I need 50 people in ticket sales when I don't know whether or not There will be ticket sales. Why do I need pro scouts when I now see that I can be just as impactful using video and analytics? I don't need a travel budget. Ever see the movie Up in the Air? I love that movie. If you can cut a budget, you cut it. If you can run your business more efficiently, you do it. If you have to batten down the hatches and wait for a recession to end and make sure your business comes out the other side, you do it. If you can build a car with robots, you fire people on the assembly line. They get retrained and they get new jobs somewhere else in the market. The argument we hear, pro scouts, there's nothing they can do. They've been in baseball for 50 years. I get it. That, unfortunately is life. If you have a career, what about the career of people who used to make typewriters? They're done because now we all use computers. Either they learned how to make computers or they went into another line of business. Sometimes progress doesn't help everyone. I feel for Pro Scouts. I feel for people in ticket sales. I fear for people who can't afford to keep their home. I get it. But I, as a team president or owner, can't help everyone. I'm going to have a team that is going to be operated profitably and correctly, because when the time comes to hire again, because revenues are up again, of course I'm going to hire more people. It may not be more pro scouts, it may be more people in development. People in player development are losing their jobs because there's fewer minor league teams. That's how it goes. You don't need minor league teams with players who are never going to be in the major leagues. We have covered this before. All of the articles you read that criticize team owners and team presidents for making these decisions, just know that I will bet you one hundred times out of a hundred that if you put on those shoes, you would make those same decisions. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. That doesn't mean you wish you didn't have to do it. But reality is reality, and it may be one of the hardest sentences you'll ever have to say to somebody. But at the end of the day, it's just business. Unfortunately, it's nothing personal.
1: Here you go. Here you go.